0: This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat.
1: Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. You lie awake at night worrying, worrying some more, worrying that you're worrying too much and then worrying that you'll never be able to stop worrying. Even if you're not a worrier, Stress can hit you like a wave multiple times a day and follow you into your sleep at night. It's like the movie Groundhog Day. Lather, rinse, repeat the next night, and wake up every morning beating yourself up for being unable to fight this thing that has overtaken your life for so long. This thing called stress We're not just stressed here in America. We are so stressed that our nervous systems respond to everyday events as if we're living in the war zone of a third world country, scrounging to feed our families while ducking under a continuous hail of bullets. Even though we aren't under threat, our nervous systems act as though we are. We could be peacefully arriving five minutes late to events, or calmly returning a phone call later if we don't answer when it rings, or reminding our brain that it's making mountains out of molehills as we fret over things that really aren't a big deal. But most of the time, we don't. Why not? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an expert on stress who's got an idea about how we can switch off the worrying and get on with our lives, I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about the stress switch when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad.
0: Armin Brott. After this. From the MrDad.com radio network. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple?
2: Do you have these in a seven
0: and a half? How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight? Is there a direct flight? How long does the warranty last? What's your soup of the day? How do you
2: change the ringtone?
0: Does it come in blue?
2: Does this bus stop at Elm Street?
0: We ask questions everywhere in life.
2: Is it raining out?
0: Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met
2: before? What's my account balance?
1: Yet somehow, when we get to the doctor's office... Any questions?
2: Um... No.
1: We clam up.
0: Ask questions.
2: What is this test for?
0: Are there any side effects?
2: When do I get my results?
1: Questions lead to better health care. Go to AHRQ.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is Amy Sarin, who's the author of The Stress Switch, The Truth About Stress and How to Short-Circuit It. Amy, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I think we need to start with some basics here. What is stress, and what's the problem with it?
2: So I love that we're starting with basics, because stress is very misunderstood. I think so. stress... It totally is. We're way overcomplicating it. I'm a neuropsychologist, and everyone is misunderstanding stress. They think stress is something that happens to you, and it's actually your body's moment-to-moment reaction to a trigger. And a trigger could be a loud sound or a thought or a pain sensation from your body or seeing somebody that you've just had a fight with. So any kind of sensory trigger can set off your stress switch. And if you think about it in those simple terms, then we can actually apply the correct things to lower stress and keep ourselves healthier and happier.
1: And stress just by itself, though, is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you're running away from a lion or if there's a car about to hop up the curb and get you, that stress is going to save your life, right? It's when when it lasts for long periods of time, that's when we have problems.
2: Right. Ideally, we want to go into fight or flight. We want our stress switches to be 10 because in those situations where we really have to fight or flee you know, for our lives. Um, but in modern day society, um, most of us aren't going through that on a daily basis. But our nervous systems are still reacting as though we are. And so if we can keep our stress switches low when it's not necessary that they be high, then we have a much better life. Um, we have better health. Uh, we're more present for our relationships, and everything is is much improved
1: and Tell us a little bit about the stress as it applies to parenting i mean there there's so many different places where there can be stress i mean there's the stress of getting the kids ready in the morning and but there's also the kids' stress about being hassled to get ready in the morning and how how what are some common areas that parents are likely to encounter stress or have to deal with it?
2: Yeah, certainly, you know, just the added um, schedule (laughs) and running kids around can add a lot of stress, a lot of time pressure, a lot of overwhelm. And I think the main thing that parents come to me with is they they mismanage their kid's stress. So when a kid is tantruming, when their stress switches on high, or they're basically in fight or flight, People, teachers, or parents will try to reason with the kids. And you have to think of your stress as a scale of 0 to 10. And if the stress is higher than a 6 or a 7, the actual areas of the brain that process language are shutting down. And so you cannot reason with a child or an adult who is too stressed out. And so you need a neuroscience hack to kind of bring that stress down. So you can infuse humor in that moment. Fake farting works for little children <laughs> or doing something hilarious. That will create a pattern interrupt and they'll come out of fight or flight and then be able to reset and listen to what you have to say or do what they're supposed to do. Um, And then in older kids, we want to not try to um, talk them out of their stress. So stress is a nervous system reaction, but parents are typically trying to use language and reasoning to bring them down. And it doesn't work on adults. So, you know, why should it work on kids? So my book talks about some of the the neuroscience hacks that you can use that are in the moment that can bring people's stress levels down and then we can kind of go about our day.
1: Well, give us an example of one of those, a situation and a a better way to handle things than what we are likely to do in the moment.
2: So there's a therapy called EMDR therapy and it uses bilateral stimulation. So there's gentle vibrations on either side of the body. And we realize that those vibrations actually instantaneously in about 30 seconds can reduce 62% of stress. So you can have a child who's standing there being upset. If they'll let you, you can actually tap on them side to side. It's not quite as effective as having tech devices. So we've embedded technology and technology devices now that are about $160. And you can actually just have the child hold them. They'll calm down, and then you can get back to business. Hmm.
1: Isn't, EMDR, have- isn't EMDR eye movement, or is that the way that it started
2: yeah, it's, uh, it started with eye movements and then they added um, auditory stimulation and tactile. So in other words, they added vibrations and then they also added some sound um, some sound of, of stimulation in the therapeutic context. And we know that that therapy works much faster for PTSD and helping people get over trauma. What we didn't know is that just extracting the bilateral stimulation in devices and using it on a daily basis could actually in the moment that you're using it, just reduce stress significantly. And so this can be um, really great, I think, in terms of maybe preventing PTSD um, mm-hmm. or also just bringing people back to a lower stress switch number in the moments when they're stressed out.
1: Now, is that something that you can do on your own as a parent or that we could teach our children, perhaps slightly older kids than, than toddlers, uh, to, to be able to do? on their own to deal with a stressful situation? Well, what could they do if they don't happen to have a device? I mean, can they tap on their legs? Or, or what, what would that kind of approach look like?
2: So there's something called the butterfly hug, and you can have kids cross their, uh, cross their arms across their chest and then tap really quickly on their shoulders back and forth. Or a parent can actually tap very quickly on their kids, and that will help. The, the issue with that is that is someone is in fight or flight, they might be in fight mode. So if you go and try to touch somebody in that state, they might have a reaction and kids might hit or slap. Mm-hmm. And then the other issue is if kids are a 9 or a 10 and you try to tell them to do something, they're just going to yell and get defiant. So it's easier in a lot of cases to use the devices. But if a kid is just sort of stressed out or upset, maybe like a 5 or 6 out of 10, they can certainly start to, you know, tap themselves and um, that can calm them down. Um, you can also have them do things like if it's a small kid you can just say something very simple that they can process like chase me and then you start running and play a game and if their instinct is to chase you that gets their body moving and that can introduce a pattern interrupt. But we really just don't want to try to talk
1: <laughs> to yeah, people when
2: exactly. they're too stressed out. It doesn't work.
1: Well how does it work with teenagers? This is another group. I mean they're they're almost by definition prickly and and they're certainly not gonna be interested in getting a hug or in being tapped, or <laughs> anything like that. But they but they need some strategies that, that they can deal with on their own, so that, so that whatever it is that they're heading towards doesn't develop into a full-on panic attack.
2: Yeah. So they, they surprisingly do, the teenagers um, love the tech devices because they're kind of cool, and it's so instantaneous. If something calms you instantaneously, you will want to use it over and over again so we've had good success with teens in that but if they don't have them um, i think the important thing for teenagers is a healthy base of behaviors Um, a lot of them are on screens until two in the morning and people think that um oh well if i put a low blue light filter on my screens then they're okay they can be on them but people don't realize that the overhead lighting is actually disrupting their circadian rhythms and so when you're not sleeping very well as an entire culture and teens have a delayed circadian rhythm meaning that they're supposed to sleep in but they're the ones waking up oftentimes very early in the morning to get to school and so that just introducing some hacks for better sleep for teens can lower their stress in general and then in the moment that if something happens you know girl drama or a breakup or you know something difficult at school for example then um, in the moments when they're not stressed out, you, that's in the moments when you want to process that and teach them some skills and um, some, some good habits to not, uh, you know, obsess about that, to make different meanings. And there's so many great apps out there that can help. Um, there's, you know, the Headspace app and the Calm app if they're willing to try meditation. There's an artificial intelligence robot called Wobot. It's W-O-B or W-O-E-B-O-T. And you can actually text it, and it will text back to you and help you with cognitive and behavioral strategies. And I have um, a lot of those outlined in my book. But, gosh, doing that on a free app is, is such a gift. So there's a lot out there that we can access
1: to help. I'm talking with Amy Sarin, who's the author of The Stress Switch, The Truth About Stress and How to Short-Circuit It. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Amy. and want to get into a lot more strategies, that she's got, the hacks, as she's calling them, uh, about stress and what we can do about it and a lot of different kinds of situations and lots of practical stuff for you. So stick around. I'm Armin Bratt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting.
0: More with Mr. Dad, Armin Bratt after this from the mrdad.com radio network <laughs> You must be your fairy you godmother. If if <laughs>
2: yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good
0: heavens, child. You can't go in that.
2: Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh, that does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely <laughs> in a booster seat.
0: Hop in, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream, a wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov.
2: This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. All right, class, let's hear what everyone did this weekend. Jill?
0: Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a 100 years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this huge rock
1: your parents to take you and your friends to
2: the forest this week and find the fun adventurous you it's closer than you think check out discovertheforest.org brought to you by the u.s forest service and the ad council
1: welcome back to positive parenting i'm armin brad if you're just joining us talking with amy sarin who's the author of the stress switch the truth about stress and how to short circuit it um i think people have a tendency to think about stress or hacks as, as a cure rather than as a, a momentary resolution possibly or, or minimizer of symptoms that we're not going to be able in our lives to completely eliminate stress, are we?
2: Right. And we don't want to. You know, to your point earlier, we want some stress. stress uh, moderate stress can motivate us and can help us get through things. But it's the excess stress that we want to cure. It's the unnecessary stress. So if I see a snake and have to run from it, I need stress in that moment to run away. But once I'm done, I want my body to calm down as quickly as possible. Because if it doesn't, it stays in an inflammatory state. I'm more likely to get sick. I'm more likely to be irritable. I'm more likely to not be able to learn in school that day or get my work done to remember things. So that's the trick is to only be stressed when it's necessary.
1: So there's acute stress and then there's chronic stress. And how does that, how, how do the two different stresses affect our bodies and our, our brains?
2: So I would say that chronic stress is just acute stress happening over and over and over again. So if you we're looking at stress as it's in the moment, chronic stress just means there are more moments when the body is unnecessarily stressed. And so we want to take That um, that as a problem and create a body and a brain that are not flipping on the stress switch too often and up to too high of a level. And so we need we need a reset to a lower baseline level. Because there are people that walk around, you know, they wake up and their stress switch is at a six out of ten, and they kind of hang out there all day. And then one thing happens and they go up to a ten. Whereas someone else whose stress switch is a default of like a two they can actually, if something else happens, it goes up to a four or five. They can stay reasonable, and um, they're a lot less likely to get sick. And, you know, we know that children who go through a lot of stress because of um, unstable environments when they're younger, they have so many more health problems because we're really, there's really no mind, body, and separation. It's all connected.
1: Yeah. Can you give us some more hacks about how adults and kids, for that matter, the can can deal with with just nerves, for example, pre presentation nerves or first date nerves or or anything like that, where where you just need to be able to calm down to a point where you can be present as opposed to just torturing yourself about things you think are going to go wrong. <laughs>
2: I always go back to the touch points, the wire device or the wireless devices, because that's just the easiest thing. And there's a new study that shows that a Brazilian adult giving a presentation, it actually stabilizes their cortisol faster afterwards when they have those on. And so it may, lowering stress can actually help with performance also. Um, and if you don't have something like that, then there's always kind of the tried and true, you know, visualization exercises where If you are thinking of something and your nervous system sets your stress switch on, if you can lower the stress switch while you're thinking about it, then the next time you think about it, your brain is likely to default to a lower stress switch. In other words, if I think about giving a presentation, my stress switch goes up to an eight. But I do some things to calm myself down, and I do that over time, over and over again. That is what's called desensitization. Then after that, if I think about presenting, I might only go up to a two or a three instead, and I'm more likely to have a smooth presentation and not go into full-blown flight or fight, fight or flight while I'm in it that moment. But certainly there's many, many ways to lower your stress, and in moments when you're not a six or higher, you can employ breathing strategies, um, you can do positive thinking, you can write things out, Practicing when you're in a uh, non-stressed state can also help desensitize and prepare you for certain things. And but what's really important is to you know that whenever we're stressed out about something, we're more likely to want to avoid it. So you mentioned a first date. When your nervous system gets really worked up and the stress switch goes on, it actually signals you to avoid that. So you may not ask that person out. Um, or your child may say, no, I don't want to try out for the sport or for the band because they're nervous. And if we lower the anxiety, they're so much more likely to live into their full potential and take that risk.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, which is exactly why they need to have some sort of relatively easy to access ways of of calming themselves. I'm just saying, I'm using right. calming themselves, and that may not be exactly the right phrase, but of of coping with the stress and reducing it in the moment so that they can, exactly what you said, live to their full potential or, or try new things and explore new things or not miss opportunities because they're so worried that, that something terrible is going to happen.
2: Yeah, and, you know, another important thing, let's say you can't lower your stress, you know, because we all try positive mantras, like, everything's okay, I'm not going to die, I just want to, you know, just going to ask her out. (laughs) I'm just going to do this. And you're still really stressed out. If your motivation exceeds your stress level in that moment, you're going to go for it. And when you go for it, then your stress cannot stay at a really high level for really long for most of us. So if you do something really risky or scary or stress provoking, and then your anxiety goes down during that in and of itself produces a desensitization effect. You're more likely to do it again. That's why the first time with something is much harder than the second or third or fourth time. It has to do with your stress switch. So sometimes parents think their kids can't do something because they're stressed out. And there are kids that when you put them in this situation, they will stay stressed out the entire time, and that's what we call flooding. And, and then they have to come into my office and I have to undo that. But most of the time, know that those risks that you're going to take, you know, joining the soccer team, playing your first game, giving a presentation, doing a recital, that in and of itself should produce a desensitization effect, and the second, third, and fourth time will be easier. So just getting over that hump and challenging people to go for their goals is sometimes what's needed if they can't calm down beforehand.
1: You talk a lot in the book about negative predictions. I- explain that a little bit. Is that is that just saying, oh, this just never can work out because I'm not smart enough or tall enough or big enough or whatever? Or it so goes beyond bo- that?
2: Yeah, our brains aren't passive. Our brains don't just take in information and then kind of do stuff with it. Our brains are actively integrating everything in every moment and making predictions based on that based on our past based on um this how stressed out we are in that moment if you're more stressed out you're going to make your brain is automatically going to make a more negative prediction than if you're not stressed out isn't that interesting so just by being calmer your brain is going to be naturally more positive but these negative predictions um have nothing to do with reality But those can really fuel our stress, you know, oh, I'm going to do this and then this is going to happen. And you don't really know that. So paying attention to these cognitive distortions that we make that can fuel our stress, which is sometimes really helpful in saying, you know, I don't really have any basis to make that negative prediction. Mm -hmm. And um, if I can shift to understanding that I'm not sure and I can meet the moment where it is or think something positively instead, then that might help to lower the stress switch a bit.
1: Now, what about things like hypnosis? Does that work for for dealing with stressful situations, especially repeated ones?
2: Yeah, hypnosis can work. Um, I think that it's faster to use uh, EMDR therapy or bilateral stimulation where, um, again, if you're thinking about if you're making a negative prediction in the moment and we can tone your stress down with some method, then the next time automatically you think about that same thing, it's not going to register as stressful again. So these are some of the methods that we can use. And there's, there's a lot of different things you can do. even if you're obsessing about something and you go out and take a run, and it's like, keep obsessing it with it while you run. It'll actually spontaneously become more positive because you're changing your neurochemistry through the running, and it probably won't feel as stressful the next time you think about
1: it. Amy Serin, and it's S-E-R-I-N, is the author of The Stress Switch, The Truth About Stress and How to Short-Circuit It. Amy, have you got a website?
2: Yes, it's um, com. Well,
1: that's pretty simple. Okay. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, don't you know you can't take that baby out in the
0: rain
2: today? And where is her hat? To your own parents.
0: You should take the baby outside every day,
2: even in the rain. To your friends. You have got to get this diaper cream. It is so much better than the one you've been using. When it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, she gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with.
1: Honey, I totally support you getting the baby vaccinated. But really, shouldn't you put the baby's hat back on?
0: A message from the U.S. Department
1: of Health and Human Services. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I'm completely convinced that my son has an eating disorder. When he was little, he was always a little on the heavy side. Right when puberty hit, he suddenly started dieting. At first, I was proud of him for taking charge of his own weight. He looked really good and seemed happier with himself, but he kept right on dieting to the point that he began to look skinny. To make matters worse, he's talking about wanting to lose even more weight. Thinking our son might be really sick, my husband and I took him to our pediatrician, who said that he was fine. I asked whether our son could have an eating disorder, but the pediatrician just smirked. What should we do? Two things. First, get yourself a new pediatrician. Of the 30 million people in the U.S. who suffer from eating disorders, about a third are male, as are about half of those who binge eat, purge, abuse laxatives, fast, and do other extreme things to lose weight. But far too many medical professionals, including your pediatrician, are too attached to the idea that girls and women are the only ones affected. Second, find a mental health professional who has experience treating eating disorders. As with pediatricians, many therapists have trouble acknowledging that boys and men can be affected. Finding the right mental health professional will be essential if your son needs extended outpatient or inpatient treatment. Most eating disorder programs and facilities don't accept males. That, of course, makes it harder for boys like your son to get the treatment they so desperately need. Third, talk to your son. He may actually realize that he's got a problem, but may be resisting asking for help because he's internalized the eating disorders are for girls message and worries that people might see him as less than masculine. While we're on the subject of conditions that most people think affect only women, I want to mention osteoporosis. We all know that being overweight increases men's risk of developing high blood pressure, diabetes, and cardiovascular problems, including heart attack and stroke. But a study recently presented at the North American Society for Radiology found that being overweight, especially if that excess fat is worn around the middle, greatly reduces men's bone strength and makes them more prone to fractures and breaks. And while osteoporosis in women affects mainly those over 60, in men, the effects are apparent even as young as 34. And a just-published study in the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association found that men 35 to 50 were slightly more likely than women the same age to suffer from osteopenia, which is a loss of bone density that's not quite as severe as osteoporosis. However, untreated, osteopenia can develop into osteoporosis later in life. Treatments start with lifestyle modifications, including increasing exercise and calcium intake and reducing alcohol consumption and cigarette smoking. If you've got a comment or a suggestion or uh, anything at all for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it to us. You can reach us through our website, MrDad.com, and we do try to answer as many emails as we possibly can. While you're there, you can also check out archives of our podcast that you've been listening to, and you can find out a lot of information about my many books on fatherhood and parenting and a lot of other resources. It's all at MrDad.com.